my name is Antonia Lloyd-Jones, and I'm delighted to be appearing on the Fitzcarraldo Editions podcast. Hello, and welcome to the third edition of the Fitzcarraldo podcast. My name is Daniel Hearn, and I'm delighted to be joined today by the amazing Antonia Lloyd-Jones, who is uh, a translator from Polish, who is, um, I sometimes suspect, the reason we have any Polish literature in this country, uh, in the UK at all. Um, and we're going to be talking a little bit about her work generally, about the book she's done for Fitzcarraldo and some others. Um, welcome, Antonia. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me to take part in the podcast. And um, thank you, Danny, for agreeing to interview me. Um, I want to talk about how you started as a translator and all those sorts of things. Um, but before we go back to that, um, how about we start with what you're working on now? What's what's on the desk now? What would you be doing if you weren't being distracted by other things? Right now, there are two things in particular. One of them is the Penguin Book of Polish Short Stories, which is um, sort of gradually assembling itself. Um, and that's a very exciting project. I'm very, very pleased to be doing it because it's giving me an opportunity to translate and publish in English, in many cases for the first time, some fantastic authors who've been overlooked in translation. And I very much hope this will be an opportunity to open the door for more of their work to appear in English. So I'm, I'm grateful for that opportunity. And the other thing is that <clears throat> the dreaded Frankfurt Book Fair is approaching in its relentless way. And every year I prepare materials for Polish publishers to use to uh, pitch their books to publishers around the world. And at a re recently at a literary festival in Poland, I um, discovered a book which is being very successful in Poland immediately uh, by a poet called Małgorzata Lebda. And the Polish title is Wakome. And I'm still wondering how to translate this. Perhaps voracious. But it's a very beautiful piece of extremely poetic prose about the experience of the narrator in a small village where staying with her grandparents during her grandmother's gradual death. I can see how the title is. So the title is a one-word adjective. Yes, Wakome, and it's in the neutral gender, new to gender. So um, I think I might talk to her about it. I think I need to discuss this with her. You you'd said the first thing you said when I asked you what's on your desk, you said, well, there are two things. Um, and I'll come back to the Penguin Book of Polish Short <laughs> Stories later, which is a really interesting uh, opportunity and challenge. Is, is, that, is it normal to have more than one thing on the go? Um, well, I would rather it wasn't because when I'm translating one particular book, I like to keep one voice clear in my head. And it's always quite tricky to translate two texts at once because my mind's jumping around. But in this case, the Penguin book of Polish short stories is still in the planning to some extent. I'm still reading and researching, although a large to a large extent, I know what's going in it. So I haven't actually started to translate my texts. 
gulp, not much time left. Um, so I'm trying to keep the part of my mind that needs to hear, in this case, a particularly beautiful, quiet voice. I'm trying to keep that part of my mind free for the material I need to prepare to for the pitching of this particular book. It's interesting what you say about try, trying to sort of isolate yourself from try, try not not trying not to have lots of voices that are sort of competing with each other or that may be corrupting each other because it strikes me it strikes me that one of the things that's quite hard for those of us who translate rather than for example someone who might be writing a book um is because we're producing probably if we're lucky several books a year whatever you're translating now will be different from whatever you're working on edits for and whatever you're working on copy edits for and whatever you're reading the proofs for. And so there will be three or four things at different stages, at different sort of stages of their of their evolution, all, you know, popping back up onto your desk every once in a while. Yes, that's absolutely true. I do find that quite hard. Um, I suppose I've got used to things being at different stages. So once something is past its editing stage <coughs> and moving towards proofs I can put it in a slightly different compartment I hope in my mind um, but this thing about voice I think is very very important for translators and and what you hear is crucial um, I went to a concert with a friend the other day it was absolutely fantastic Vikingur Olafsson playing the Goldberg Variations and I'd been listening to them played by somebody else <coughs> online earlier in the day to sort of warm me up. And then hearing him play it, it was so completely different and absolutely stunning. And I was with a friend who is a concert pianist herself. And we were talking about the similarities in our work and about how the music of the text is, is just as important to me as the musical notes that she's playing. Um, and I think that's, you know, there's definitely a correlation between translation and music. And um, something that I do as a translator, and I'm very, very lucky with Polish, because the Poles make an inordinate number of e audiobooks. Personally, I like audiobooks, which not everybody does. But what I do is... If I'm translating a novel and there's an audio book that exists that's performed by an actor, I will get that audio book. And of course, I've already read the book a couple of times. In my case, I usually have read them in advance. I know not everybody does. <laughs> um. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, no, it's a different approach. So, um, but when I'm translating, I will listen to a few pages of the audiobook before I then do my first draft of those few pages. Um, and, of course, that actor adds an interpretation, but they very often explain, through their interpretation, things that I might have missed as a non-pole. And I find that really, really useful. Sometimes it's the author reading it. And that, again, it tells me a lot more about the text. And it makes me listen to the cadences and the music of the text, which I think is really vital to then trying to reproduce that in English in the right way, trying to reproduce the author's intention. So a lot of it's about listening. And then when I get to 
my second or third draft, I will read the text aloud in English. I mean, not always literally, but I'll read it in my head in a way that's listening to it um, so that I can see if it's worked. That comparison with um, performers playing the Goldberg variations, say, um, is an interesting one and, and is, I think, the way a lot of us now talk about translation as something which is uh, which is interpretive. It is creative, but it's also about interpreting a thing that, that exists. But it also suggests to me that there is something about individual translators' style that we can maybe pin down. I feel like I... As you say, you listen to three or four different people playing the Goldberg variation, to feed, and you, and there is something different about what they find in it and what they bring to it and how they how they breathe, even if they're breathing with their with their hands. Um, yeah. And I kind of feel like you know, I I know what a a Lang Lang recording of anything sounds like, and it doesn't sound like Glenn Gould's Goldberg variations in any way. I wonder if that's something which we should feel comfortable about as translators, or should be trying to resist this idea that. You know, you can re you recognise an Antonio Lloyd Jones recording um, at a at a hundred yards. Hmm. I don't know if you can. <laughs> um, sorry, I just picked up. I just something you said there. Uh, I'm not really responding to what you've just said, but something you said just a little earlier, which was that my friend and I were noticing in this concert the spaces the silences and I think that's also important in translation there are places where there is perhaps there's blank space on the page it's important in writing too it's important to notice where an author has essentially put silence and to be aware of that as well yes and resist the temptation to fill in the gaps and put things in just because you know that that you know what goes in the silence you kind of explain those things I suppose Yes, I think silence is is relevant and should be listened to. Um, but yes, I don't know if you can, perhaps you can recognise the work of a particular translator. Um, I can't be objective about my own. But I have had people say to me in the past, uh, people who've read my translations and who know me say, oh, that was so you, that book. And, and I'm thinking, really? Have I injected some of myself into it somehow? Um, and I suppose we do, inevitably. Um, but it, it then makes me wonder, I'm, I'm always very interested in the relationships between the translator and the author. And I'm lucky enough that most of my authors are alive. And even the dead ones I have some communication with, which I can tell you more about if you wish. Um, and um, so there are good fits and perhaps not so good fits in terms of personalities and responses to each other and to each other's sensibilities. So that's a, that's a question partly of... of what are the things you're translating as much as how you're doing it? Maybe we can talk a bit about mm -hmm. those sorts of choices and those matches. But I was thinking also about the way in which we talk about, and even some critics will talk about the work of certain translators. Um, I'm sure I have used the word virtuosic for certain translators' work on certain books that require... Uh, the required translation that is, you know, showy and flashy and full of energy and and full of tricks. And virtuosic is is 
a word for someone playing, you know, Rachmaninoff second piano concerto. Um, let's talk about the the beginning of this uh, long and illustrious career that you have had. Um, before you were a literary translator, you were other things. You were um, a child. You were uh, you were a person with other jobs. Um, and there came a point when you did your first literary translation, which I'll ask you about in a moment. Does it feel now, thinking about, you know, you had a childhood in which you had languages around you and you had books around you, um, and you did uh, you studied and you did other jobs? Does it feel now that becoming a literary translator was inevitable, even if it didn't seem then? Does it feel now that, well, actually, it was only a matter of time if I look at the, if you, I look at ten-year-old Antonia? It was that or be a writer, basically. Um, when I look back. But I had this obsession with languages as a small child. And I can remember <clears throat> wandering around the house with this list of languages that I wanted to learn. And my father was um, an Oxford professor, and they were often visiting academics staying in the house. And I would waylay people. I can remember, I'd wait till my parents were out of sight. And I would waylay these people and show them the list and ask them which one they could teach me. There came a point where you decided um, Polish was the language for me, and this came sort of... You hadn't learned it as a child. You hadn't studied it at university. How did Polish become a, a language and, indeed, a culture and a country, country plan that you sort of um, built this, what has become this incredibly important relationship with? Well, the, the, the truer story of my development as a linguist is that my father encouraged me a great deal in, with my linguistic interests. But being a, a, a sort of academic with very high standards, um, he was always correcting everything we ever said. Um, uh, we used to read a great deal together and um, he used to read aloud to me every Sunday afternoon, which was a great treat. And one of the books he read, we read together was Turgenev's first love in Isaiah Berlin's translation. And I said precociously to my father when I was about 11, <clears throat> I said, next time I read that, I'm going to read it in Russian. And I did. Um, so I started learning Russian when I was 12, because I was at a very nice prep school in Oxford called the Dragon School, where they offered it as an option. And the beauty of it was that my father didn't know it, so he couldn't keep correcting me. This is what I think, trying to psychoanalyze myself retrospectively, happened. Um, so I. So it's a way of you get to impress him, and, yeah, and yes, and but you, he could be proud that, of me without he, he would see me the, all the time he would see the value of this, but he also wouldn't yeah. see that because I could never live up to his standards. I mean, he was a genius, and I'm, I just could never quite be up to that academic level. I just wasn't. I'm not like that. So um, I studied Russian. I did O level with private lessons because the school I was at didn't offer it. Then I did A-level, um, and then I did a university degree in it. Um, and I don't think I was particularly good. I was rather a sort of naughty student who explored life rather than doing lots of academic work. Um, but I came out of Oxford University with a degree in Russian and no idea what to do next. Um, and I went to Poland for the summer because I had met some young Poles in Berlin a couple of summers before, at a time when, this was 1981, 
when Poles were essentially going abroad to work and take home hard currency to their rather bankrupt country. And it was what's known in Poland as the Solidarity Carnival, the time when solidarity was having a voice. But unfortunately, in December 1981, there was a clampdown and martial law was declared. And all that stopped. And a lot of people were arrested. And my particular friends, these young men I'd made friends with in Berlin, um, they had, uh, they invited me to come and stay. I'd been writing to them since we'd met, been corresponding um, in our own rather peculiar Russian, because I didn't know any Polish at all. So we used to write each other strange letters in mangled Russian. They were all forced to learn Russian at school. Mm. And... When I had just graduated in 1983, which was still the tail end of martial law, I went to Poland for the first time to visit them. And I went by train. And I didn't know a whole lot about the situation there. But I landed up in the perfect family for to get an understanding of what was happening in Poland and what had happened there. Because uh, my friend's father was from the part of Poland that is now Ukraine. So he came from near near Lviv, I beg its pardon, because I always think of it in the Polish in Polish terms as Lviv. And um he was from a place called Wutsk, which I've since been to. And their mother was from a place called Pinsk, which is now in Belarus. And a lot of the people from that part of Poland after the Second World War were shifted east, west, when the borders changed. Poland, the whole of Poland was shifted westwards after Yalta, which surprisingly few people actually know about. Um, but Poland was given a large strip of Germany to compensate for the land it had lost to the east. And the Germans were all moved out and the Poles were moved in. So a lot of the Poles from the Lviv, Lviv area were moved to what used to be Breslau and is now Wrocław. So this family was one of these. And my friend's father was a remarkable man. I loved that man. He was very important for me. And he, as a teenager, had gone off and fought for the partisans with no shoes and a broken gun. And he wrote an incredible memoir of his war experience. But what I saw there that first on that first visit was that my friends, who were about the same age as me, one of them was a bit older, one of them was a bit younger, these young men, that just as their parents' lives had essentially been ruined by the Second World War and their parents had had to scrabble their way back up after the war, the father who had been in the partisans and the Polish Home Army had, as anyone who had fought for Poland in that way, had, he'd been imprisoned after the Second World War, which is what happened to all these people under the communists and had been in some sort of a camp where he'd had to quarry stone as a young man. I mean, he'd survived it because he was still young enough to survive it, but he'd lost all his hair and his teeth and 
but he'd become a sort of architect slash engineer and made a good career. Um, but what we were now seeing in the post-martial law Poland was that his children's lives were looked ruined in the same way, mm. in that having had this offering of hope during the phase when solidarity flourished, everything had now been crushed. And one of my friends was facing having to go into the army because you had to. And the other one had a pretty uncertain future too, although he was graduating from university as an agriculture student. Um, and they, you know, they wanted out of there. They didn't really see a future for themselves there. So I was very moved and impressed by this. Here I was, this frightfully privileged person who'd just come out of Oxford University with the, the world open to me and all sorts of choices. I could do anything I liked. Um, although I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. But one thing I wanted to do was be a journalist and perhaps write about what was happening to them, tell people, because I felt my own contemporaries in Britain certainly didn't know anything about any of this. And this was all happening in Europe. We were no different from them. We ought to understand what was happening to our peers. So I wanted to, originally I started learning Polish with the idea that I would become a journalist and write about this. Um, I'll ask you in a second about your, the, the, the first uh, literary translation you did, but it strikes me when you're describing that really unusual access you had to the experience that these people had, this family that in a way is a microcosm of, of a, a, a big shift that happened to a lot of people and some challenges that a lot of people experienced, that for those of us who did not go to Poland in the 1980s, and I am one of those people who did not, um, the the only reason I have a sense of uh, what that experience might be like and and that sort of story is because I have been reading uh, Polish books, not least in your translation. And so one of the things that you have been doing as a translator then is even if you're not actually a journalist, is making it possible for those of us who were not in Poland in 1983 to, to meet this family that was important to you, essentially. It's lovely that you say that, because that's exactly how it seems to me, that in, for various reasons I managed to fail spectacularly to become a journalist, although I did try. Um, but through an, another series of accidents... I ended up translating Polish literature, which is probably much more suited to me anyway, um, temperamentally. And yes, I do feel that in a way I achieved what I was trying to achieve, but in a different way and in a way that suits me far better and that I'm better at. So it's strange that how fate sort of picks you up and drops you in the right little box, um, despite your best efforts to resist. And what happened was how I ended up translating was that I had got a job working for a man called Leopold Wabench, who was, again, another remarkable person who um, had come out of Poland via 
the Soviet Union. He'd been deported east from occupied Poland um, into the depths of Russia. And then, as you can read in Joseph Chapsky's book, In Human Land, in my translation. <laughs> um, Available from all good. Available, yes, etc., etc. A lot of Poles were deported east into horrible remote parts of the Soviet Union and left to rot on horrible in horrible um, uh, farms. Um, But when Germany attacked the Soviet Union, the Poles managed to persuade Stalin to let them form an army within Russia, which then, a very raggle-taggle army, because all the wives and children and families went along with it, and all these people were in a terrible state with typhus and emaciation and uh, malnutrition. But they marched eventually out of southern Russia and via the Middle East, via sort of Iran, Iraq and Palestine, and ended up, that army ended up fighting in Italy at Monte Cassino. The Poles wanted to have their go at the Germans and they got their chance. And this is partly how a lot of Poles ended up living in Britain after the Second World War because they were allowed to live in, I think, France, Italy or Britain once the war ended. So Leopold Wabench was one of these people and he was a great character and he was a Sovietologist. And he was the editor of a magazine that was called Survey, which was essentially all about what was going on in the communist world. And I got a job working for him as a kind of editorial assistant. And he used to fling texts at me and say, here, you know some Polish, translate that. And I'd think, gulp. I'm not sure I can, but I would kind of battle my way through them. And um, then through him, I met someone called Jan Hodakowski, who's extremely important in my career. And Jan Hodakowski is a Pole who was born outside Poland because, again, his parents are another of these families from what the Poles call the Kresy, the borderlands, the eastern part of Poland that Poland lost. And his father had ended up as a Battle of Britain pilot in England. And um, Jan became an architect in London, but was always helping with the effort within Poland to kind of undermine communism, essentially, in a nutshell. And when all sorts of people were arrested during martial law, he took over a publishing outfit, which was publishing books that the authorities wouldn't allow, the communist sense of them. And it was called Pulse Publishing. So from 1981, this was being run out of a flat in Earl's Court. And... I got to know Jan through my work on Survey magazine. And this was crucial for me. I used to go and sit in that flat and just listen to them all talking Polish, occasionally say something myself and have everybody fall about laughing at the ridiculous mistakes I'd made. But that's something very useful my father taught me for all his correcting. He always said to me, If you want to speak a foreign language, you've got to go ahead and speak it. If you are afraid of making mistakes, you'll never, ever be able to do it. So go ahead, be bold, make mistakes, and that will make you friends. I'll correct you later. Yeah, I'll correct you later. But but it'll make you friends because people will think you're kind of 
able to laugh at yourself, etc. And he was absolutely right. It's been it's a very useful piece of advice. So just go ahead and speak. And I, I have I can tell you if you want some of the things I have said that have <laughs> caused merriment in the past. Um, so anyway, um, uh, I sat there listening, absorbing, seeing what sort of books they were publishing. And then I got and I got a different job and I worked for the Central Office of Information, which was what the wartime Ministry of Information had become in Great Britain. And in when communism was still there, the Foreign Office, the British Foreign Office, had a, f a few small projects with the Central Office of Information. And one of them was to produce a Polish language magazine to tell Poles about Britain, about things that were happening in Britain. And I became the editor of this magazine, which went out in Polish. When I took it over, it was a bit look and learn because it had been... And we had to go through a sort of censorship process in Poland. But... Um, I decided that I could make it a bit more interesting by adding in some things about polls in Britain. The authorities in Poland didn't like this very much, but I did things like interview a Battle of Britain pilot, um, interview Felix Topolsky, the artist, who was, again, very important to me, encouraged me greatly and um, was a wonderful man. And so I would try and bring in elements. And then gradually things were changing and the British had set up what they called the Know-How Fund, which was trying to help when when things when the wall was coming down, um, it was injecting money into education of the sort of officials that didn't exist in Poland. Things like people to run the stock exchange or people to run various kind of medical projects. And I would write about that. So I was trying to move this publication towards something that wasn't just Blue Peter on paper, but that had a few elements that might be of particular interest to those polls. Um, so I had daily exposure to the language like that through hanging around with this Samist, well, Samist, that's the wrong word, but underground, perhaps, publishing outfit and working with the language on a daily basis in my office job. How does one get from that to translating a Book. You said something like a, a, you referred to like a series of little accidents. Yeah. I think was the okay. phrase you used. Okay, so one before. of them was was this was that these things combined because for the magazine I went to Glasgow where there was a, a remarkable man who I wish I had known and it is tragic that this man died as young as he did. He was called Donald Pirry and he was an academic at. Uh, Glasgow University and he ran the Polish department there. This man was visionary and he managed in I think 1988 so before what were called the round table talks in Poland before the wall had absolutely collapsed but when things were starting to change he organized a Polish culture festival in Glasgow he must have been remarkable because it was not an easy thing to do. But he brought over artists, performers, writers, people from different genres and put on this event. So I went there on behalf of the magazine to report on it. And Jan Hodakowski and Antoni Libera, who is a Polish writer, came who was working with Jan 
at Pulse, but who was based in Warsaw, they came as well. This was historic because people like Antoni Libera had not been allowed out of the country or given passports for years. So this was really something. And there, there were two Polish authors who had also been allowed to travel for the first time. Pavel Hüller and Bronisław Maj. Um, on October the 6th, we're celebrating Bronisław's 70th birthday. Unfortunately, I can't be there, but... So, um, and they were kind of, it was like those slaves coming out of the caves in the opera. They were sort of blinking into the light, being allowed to go to the West. It was extraordinary. It really was. So I met these two writers. It was very funny. There we were in Glasgow in a hotel. And they were doing exactly what they would do in Poland. They'd bought lots of cheap whiskey at the uh, Warsaw um, Airport. And we were sitting in this bar in a, a hotel pouring the drinks under the table <laughs> hiding our cheap booze anyway so then immediately after this Glasgow event these writers came and stayed at my flat in London and I spent some time looking after them and um, talking to them and Pavel Hüller had written a novel which I later translated the title came out as who was David Weisser question mark it's called Dav Weiser Davidek in Polish. And it was a big hit. It was a, a book that was making waves. Is that the phrase? And um, so Jan Horakowski had this idea, which was, here he was, a publisher. Why don't we try and do some books in English? Why don't we pick three or four really top-notch contemporary novels from countries in Central Europe, get them translated and publish them in English. So we thought we could start with this, who was David, with Weiser Davidek. At the time, another accident, I had met, I had gone to see a play and I'd arrived late and missed the play. So I was a bit annoyed. I'd, it was a play that was written in Russian I think it was Ludmila Petrushevskaya, and it was in translation by Michael Glennie. And I arrived at the Lyric Theatre too late to see it. So I was there in this kind of lobby they had there in those days, and I was thinking, damn. Um, and there was this man, who was Michael Glennie, who was a very great translator from a number of languages, including Russian. If you ever want to read Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, please read his translation, which is by far the best. Um, anyway, so I got chatting to him. And I, yeah, I knew of his existence already. And he, <laughs> this is funny, he was embroiled in one of these anthologies of Russian short stories <laughs> and was sort of struggling to get everything done and said, would I like to translate some stories for this anthology? So I, I said, yes, I would like that very much. So I translated a couple of stories for him. And then he essentially... Now that I've become a mentor, he kind of mentored me looking back and we went through the texts and he taught me a great deal about how to be looking at what I'm doing and how to do that listening and how to translate better, how to improve my techniques. But he also, I told him about this Polish book and that we had this idea. He taught me how to write a book report and how to pitch it. And he also chatted up a publisher who was Liz Calder at Bloomsbury. So I was very, very lucky. You said when you were talking about 
not being a journalist and being a translator instead. You said something like, I think it's better suited to me anyway, temperamentally, but also I'm better at it. Mm. And this this idea of being of being good at it, I'm curious I'm curious to know when you did these first translations, these first later translations, you translated a couple of stories from Michael Glenny, whatever it was, and then the book, and, and then it kind of grew. Did you know immediately, sort of, did you know what was required of this job? Did you no. understand what you were doing? <laughs> Not at all. No, when I, I particularly, I did a sample from, who, from Pavel's, Hilda's book to go with the report. And I really wasn't sure what I was doing and the first time I remember going to Jan's and I read it aloud to him so he could check if I hadn't made any you know I hadn't made any mistakes and it didn't sound quite right and we both thought it didn't sound quite right so I went away and worked on it some more and then when it came to pitching the book I mean the fact that Michael knew Liz Calder was huge I don't know how far I'd have got without him um they came back to us saying they wanted to publish this book in english and would i translate it and i kind of went who who me no no i'm not a translator i can't do that they said well we like your sample and i said but you know i'm i'm not i can't do that i don't know polish nearly well enough and so on and i had a, a flatmate at the time <laughs> it's a wonderful person called venora bennett who's the journalist and um, and Venora's very good at just getting on with it, just having a go. <laughs> she said to me, oh, go on, why don't you give it a try? <laughs> and I'm eternally grateful to her for, for stopping, essentially getting past the academic professor voice in my head, which says, you don't know how to do this, you shouldn't do this, you, you mustn't even try. So I mean, I, you don't even have a PhD in this. I don't have an O-level in Polish, nothing. But I think what you need to be good at as a translator actually is your own language, ultimately, because you can look things up. I look things up all the time, don't you? Well, maybe you don't, but I do. I couldn't possibly. I use paper dictionaries. I insist on them. I carry them around with me. (laughs) So I was quite surprised that anybody thought what I'd done was any good. So when I translated that first book, because I was nervous. I would do a chunk and then every weekend I went to Jan's house and read it to him and he would be reading the Polish and he would spot errors. But, it, uh, you know, it was great that I got immediately into this exercise, again by accident, of reading it out because I heard so much and was tinkering. Um, so, yes, I've, accidents have been very important. <laughs> How do you think, you mentioned the fact that you, I mean, you had these sorts of unofficial mentorships and you have been a mentor to many Polish translators. Um, and so you you have made a lot of starting out translators a lot better, very clearly. I wonder how you feel you have got better since mm-hmm. that first book, because there are things that, w- without, you know, going on a course and being taught things, mm-hmm. I assume you did nonetheless learn things in all of these years how does that happen is it just practice i i will be learning till i die i i I never stop learning from the translations that i do i've got a lovely thing coming up which is that a book i translated in nine in 2001 
which is House of Day, House of Night by Olga Tokarczuk. Thank you, Fitzgeraldo Editions. Um, I'm going to have the opportunity to revise my translation, which I've always had some doubts about. <laughs> so it's very interesting going back and looking at yourself 20-something years later and about, I mean, there are some basic things such as I know there are some mistakes, which I will correct, which is great. I think some blueberries ended up as blackberries or something. Because I said to That's Olga, shameful. I said to her, because it just says berries. And I remember saying to Olga, what sort of berries do you mean? Because it was describing some f fire in a forest and these bushes had been burned. And she says something about the loss of all those berries. So I said, you know, I need to know what <laughs> berries. Um, perhaps I'm filling in one of her spaces. But in Polish, this word for berries can be used just to mean blueberries. I now know. And now I would have known that. So I said, to, she said, you know, black ones. So as blackberries, brambles are just as likely to be growing in a forest as blueberries, I put blackberries. <laughs> I think you should be expelled should from the Translators yeah, Association really, for the mistake. about time I gave up, isn't it? So, but the other thing you know, is that you, there you know, was How some, you have the nerve to keep on doing this Some job. cuts were made to that book, uh partly by the editor. I had a wonderful editor there, in fact, Grant, um, who helped me a lot. She taught me a lot just by reading very critically and very well. Um, and so I'm going to reinstate the bits that were taken out, one of which, and now I am, I hope, more experienced and like a good challenge. There's a section where there's a discussion about words, which in Polish denote certain masculine ideas and certain feminine ideas but the feminine ones are all negative and the masculine ones are positive so for instance there's the word mon um menjets which means a wise man or a sage and that's a masculine noun there's a word from the same root mondri means clever so mondrala which has a feminine ending, means a wise guy or someone who, who thinks they're clever, smart aleck. So why should it be that in... And then there's the word stagets, which means an old man, and it's definitely a positive idea. Whereas starucha, an old woman, is definitely bad. And, an uh, yeah, crone, it's an old crone. So she discusses these clashing pairs and the fact that the, it's not very feminist kind of <laughs> thing. So at the time when I translated the book, even Olga had said, oh, well, you, you'll have to leave that out kind of thing. And I remember then oh, later... So this was cut. This was cut. So I remember looking later at um, the French and some, they sort of had a go at it and it, it didn't quite work and so on. So anyway, now I'm going to put it back, but I've now using completely different words and um, I'm not going to betray anything yet partly because I can't remember off the top of my head, but I have found some things that work in English. Um, since you mentioned Olga, there, there, are a lot of, um, there are a lot of writers you've had a sort of sustained work with and you've been with them for a, a long time in your career. Um, Pavel Hula, who you've talked about a little bit, is one of them who you translated right at the beginning and, and, and many books... And still translate. He's in the Polish book of... Uh, the Penguin Book of Polish Short Stories. Um, and I feel like we, those of us in, in English, know him because of because of their work. 
But I'm interested in that in those kind of sustained relationships you have. Uh, you, you mentioned when we were emailing last week a, a book you translated by Yatsik Daniel um, Saturn, um, which is about 10 years old. Um, and you've done other books by him. You've done books that he's written with his husband. You've worked with him quite a lot. But I'm interested in that process of sort of following a writer's development. And that particular one, Saturn, I've, I read a bit of it just before we, we started today. And it feels like it's even just like that the prose in English in your translation, as far as I can tell, feels different from things of Yatik I read that were much later. And I wonder what if you can say something about that experience of I mean, you've you've been translating Olga on and off for a couple of decades and Pavel for that long and Yatsek for, for a little over a decade now. And there is a sort of you, you you kind of track these these evolutions of these careers somehow. It's funny that because the other book of Yatsex that I've translated is Lala, which he wrote before he wrote Fatan when he was only twenty. Which was published much later here. It was yes. published about five or six years ago here. <laughs> That's right. Um, he is a remarkable author. I mean, I have a, I have a thing about growing up with the author. So, for instance, Olga and I are almost exactly the same age. And I have known her for something like 25 plus years. I think we met sometime in the 90s. Pavel Hüller is a little bit older than me. And I have known him since, as I said, 1980, 1988. Um, and I say this to the mentees. I say it's very good to find authors now of your generation. And then you can kind of grow up together. And I see the development of their writing and their careers, and I see them maturing in certain ways. So, you know, they're changing, they're developing all the time. It's quite funny. You take a writer abroad. This happened with Pavel, for instance. They have a success because the book's out in English. So you go abroad. And we went to Ireland to promote his book, uh, the first one, who was David Weisser. And... Uh, <laughs> Pavel can't go anywhere or do anything without processing everything that's around him into literature. So you have an experience with him, such as a trip to Ireland, and then you see it in a literary form in the next book. <laughs> so there's a short story all about being in Ireland, which is, it's not literally what we were doing, but I can see jokes that we had or elements and Olga does this too well I was going to say I remember there's one instance with Olga I remember doing a workshop I was doing a workshop in Edinburgh mm -hmm. on on flights and you were you were there as a civilian pretending you had nothing to do with this book um this is Jenny Croft's translation published by Fitzgerald a few years ago and I remember mention I referred to something that happened some episode in the book and you gave a little wry chuckle in the corner and I said what and you said that happened in my car Oh, yes. Well, um, there's, a, there's a whole story in that book about her. It's very funny. Olga was staying with me when she was writing that book, and I was, I was living in New Zealand. And my stepmother rang up um, to report that she and my father, the then by then retired and rather ancient professor of ancient Greek, being ancient himself, um, had gone on a cruise in Greece where they were giving lectures. And my father had fallen out of the bed in this cabin and he'd fallen a distance of a few inches but had made an unholy fuss about it and so my stepmother was having to put up with this so Olga turned this <laughs> into a whole story in this book about a, 
an academic who's travelling with her husband in Greece and the husband suddenly dies in an accident and then she's left there to deal with this. So I said, you killed my dad, how dare you? She said, oh dear, yes, I owe you dinner kind of thing. <laughs> but it does happen. You, you find your, your, your little things, little, and oh, I always say Olga's a bit like a magpie. She kind of picks up, picks up bits and puts them in her nest and <laughs> you kind of think, oh, I remember that. So my funniest of those is that when I first read Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, um, right, it starts, the first chapter, um, the narrator and her neighbour um, confront the dead body of another neighbour who the narrator hated, who was a poacher, who she calls Bigfoot and who's a kind of rather repellent character. And I read this and I said, Olga, you've you've killed off Pan Rishek, who was... <laughs> I recognised this man who used to look after their goats. And she, <laughs> she said, oh dear, well, yes, you know, it's a bit like him, kind of thing. <laughs> and I had, I had, I had got it right. <laughs> so it, it's a never cross an author. You may end up deadied in a book. I mean, I like to think translators can do some damage too, but we won't. <laughs> Uh, don't have to go there. Um, you, you said when you were talking a while back about this this publisher you were you had dealings with that was looking at the sort of books that were being censored in Poland that were not allowed to be published in Poland um, in the in the eighties. He was publishing them and smuggling them in. Right, um, and, and I'm I'm curious about. Uh, a sort of relationship between that, whether it's possible to draw a line between that and the sorts of writers you are interested in translating from Polish mm. now. Because it strikes me, I mean, you said earlier that one of your friends read something of yours and said, this is very you, and I think that's to do with the, the selection of books as much as style or whatever it might be of the, of the translation. But I wonder whether there's something deliberate as well as instinctive, about being interested in these writers rather than those writers, these writers who don't necessarily, who aren't seen by officialdom to represent the best of Polish literature or the most, or the purest or the most wholesome of Polish literature. Well, you know me, I'm not a conformist. And, uh, you know, if there's a big red button that says do not press, I'll go and press it. And I do think literature has a very important role to play in keeping the authorities on their toes and in defending, well, basically human rights. And I am interested in that. And as I've told you, my career started with the idea of helping people who had been wrong-footed by the communist state. Um, and inevitably, there's a lot in good Polish literature, there's a lot of fighting against all of that. And yes, I, I, I do think it's that role of literature is important. And whether it's instinctive, it's more instinctive than deliberate. But but um, uh, so you talked about Jacek Daniel, for instance, who is now standing as a candidate in the upcoming elections in Poland. Um, really as a way of defending gay rights in Poland and campaigning for um, same-sex marriage, which in a country as catholic as Poland is a pretty tough thing to be doing. He's extremely brave in defending people, but he and other 
author friends of mine know that the bottom line is that there are teenagers who commit suicide in that country and not only there's other countries too I mean I'm not saying it's just Poland but it's very confusing to grow up in a place where you're being told that you're not acceptable and what you are is somehow evil. I mean, that's appalling. And I think it's very brave of people who who defend those who, who are put in that sort of position. I seem to remember, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but you translated something of Yatsik's um, for, might have been the Observer, yes, about five right. years ago to do with uh, the Pride... I think it was Pride. It was a Pride Warsaw, March in Białystok, which is a, a city where, in the east of Poland, where it is much less the public are less likely to have very liberal views than in some of the other large cities. And Jacek was taking part in a Pride March there, um, where he was supposed to speak off the back of some truck and so on, but it turned into a sort of um danger zone because they had they had riot police along the edges of it but there were people attacking the crowd and there, there was just a terrible terrible incident and uh, a very nasty atmosphere and and some potential extreme danger and he wrote a very powerful description of this and i think he published it on his facebook page or something and I read this and I thought, here's a perfect opportunity to tell people here about what this experience is like for people in a country which we think is sort of okay and nothing t too bad. Can, I mean, Poland's a wonderful country. It's a lovely place. There's all sorts of people having a great life. And, and however, these things can happen there. So I translated it. And I contacted uh, The Guardian and it was published in The Observer a few days later, which was great because they did it quite quickly. It was one of those. So that was a kind of piece of news reporting by him. But I translated it and, um, you know, nudged it into publication. One of the things that's really interesting about that, it's an extraordinary piece and that's why I remember very vividly reading it. It was, it was summer uh, 19, I think, if I remember rightly. Um, but it's also... An interesting example of uh, one of the things that the job of the translator is. Mm. Um, that is not you sitting quietly in your cupboard waiting for a publisher to send you some poems to translate. Mm. Um, that is to do with a relationship you have with an author. It is to do with the kind of solidarity you want to to um, demonstrate. It's to do with a, a, a battle on you're prepared to be engaging in, albeit it's not in a, a high-risk way in the way that Yatsik possibly is. But it feels like a really interesting example of um, what I think you and I both, the way we both talk about translation and a lot of our friends talk about translation, which is active and is quite capacious and is quite surprising, I think, to people who assume that it's responsive, that it's quiet, that it's um, sort of this rarefied thing where it's just you rewriting novels. 
They think you sit at home weeping into your tea over some books. And they don't realise that, that, that we also do other things as well as that. Only you had the time yes. to sit at home over your books. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, apropos, I translated some quotations from Olga Tokarczuk for The Guardian about what's happening to Agnieszka Holland in Poland at the moment. Because Agnieszka Holland is a film director and her new film is called The Green Border. And a green border is in Polish, that means a border you cross illegally. And it's about the refugees who've been dumped on the border between Poland and Belarus and a place where a lot of people are dying in the forest as a result because the Polish authorities won't let them into Poland and have built a dirty great fence and are policing it. Um, but they can't, these people have nowhere else to go. And they were promised by Lukashenko, obviously egged on by Putin. And these are refugees from all sorts of places in Africa. Um, they were told, we'll put you on the border of the European Union. So they innocently go along with that because they're escaping from something really horrible. Um, however, what they're going to is death in a forest, which is absolutely dreadful. And there's been an extraordinary response by the ordinary Polish people who live in that part of the world. Again, who are more likely to be not of the... They're more likely to be conservatives who support the, the government and the, the party that's in power. However, they're wonderful human beings and their response has been to go and try and help these people, which is very brave because they're breaking the law and and I've heard also that even among the authorities among the organized police etc sometimes there are people who are sympathetic to the human beings and their suffering however this film without having seen it some major politicians and this is partly because there's about to be an election and and migration is a big election issue have criticized it and said nasty things about Agnieszka Holland and said it's an anti-Polish film blah blah and unleashed a great wave of hatred towards her which is of course a terrifying and horrible thing for anyone to have to experience um, so Olga's commented on this so I translated her comments um, and yes, it's it's this is a big issue. So I was recently in at a Polish literary festival in the uh, east of Poland with my former mentee Sean By, and he's going to be doing some work on a book which is all about this border situation, written by Mikołaj Grinberg, who's an author he's translated with great success. This is a work of, of purely of reportage, in which um, Mikołaj essentially records what all these ordinary, kind people are trying to do to help these desperate people. Um, it's tragic. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know what can be done. I'm interested in, in the... I mean, maybe this isn't surprising, knowing you and knowing these people who are friends of yours, that... that one of the ways of being involved in this is 
as a translator. And this means, um, I'm sure you help in other ways. I'm sure you show support in other ways for your friends who are on um, what we think is the right side of a sometimes difficult argument. But I remember, I remember you and I were sitting in a park somewhere, I think in Lewis, and something happened somewhere, and you had to do some kind of emergency translation down, emergency literary translation down the phone, which you wouldn't think. I mean, we don't often get literary translation emergencies, but um, it feels like there's such a, there is a kind of sharper end to what the job asks of you. And I think particularly if you're quite high profile within the field, particularly if you're working with a language like Polish where there are not a lot of high profile translators, that you're called on to um, to give a voice to whether it's Olga or whoever it might be. It's very difficult because, I mean, I started my career with this thing of essentially thinking I was going to be one of these valiant warriors fighting against communism in the days when we couldn't see the end of communist era. And um, and then suddenly the wall came down and there's this wonderful, I've been very lucky, we've had these, all this wonderful long time ever since of being able, with freedom of speech, you know, being able to say what we like. And, you know, I really love Poland, I really care about those people. And it makes me sad that the country is so divided in in a quite different way and um no doubt many of the, the people who support the conservative approach um would be able to argue with me as you say you know there are two sides to every coin i'm not writing off everybody's views but at the same time what i care about is people's freedom to express themselves, people's freedom to be who they are without feeling that they're somehow going to be punished for it in not necessarily by the law but by society and I think that's worth defending and I'm prepared to help the brave authors I know um, who stand up for people. I'm prepared to help them if I can. This comes back a bit to the question which we touched on briefly before about um, what are the things you choose to translate? Who are the writers you choose to translate? Um, at this point, having now done this for a while and having this reputation and this prestige, how much of your translation work is things that you find through someone, a recommendation, a festival or whatever, and that you you know knock on a publisher's door until they do what you tell them uh, and how much is it people coming to you saying dear the great Antonio Lloyd-Jones we'd love you to translate this book for us well people coming along commissioning me is the rarity and it's wonderful when it happens <laughs> um, Fitzcarraldo editions have, have done it to me recently with a wonderful result I'm very happy about it so um, I do quite a lot of scouting um, I, as I said, I go. There's a. I like to go to the literary festival that's held each year. It's called the the Festival of the Polish Language, and it's held quite deliberately in the town called Szczebrzeszyn, which is unspellable and looks like a road accident. And this is because um, it's a quotation from a poem by a great Polish children's author, the Jan Brzechwa. I will attempt to say it. It's the, like the worst tongue twister in Polish, and they're always making me say it. Uh, when I'm there, but um, it goes like this: Ksiądz brzmi w czynach w szczebrzeszczynie. 
which essentially means... So the last thing there is in the, the, the in ship's chechen. The, the may bug buzzes in the reeds in Shebzeshin. So these chaps who come from Shebzeshin decided this was the perfect place for a literary festival and managed to set one up. And essentially it's a tent by a river and we have a lot of fun. And they, I like to go there because it's quite a small scale festival, but you've got authors kind of captive because there's one hotel where they all stay and I can see them perform and enjoy their events, find out more about their new books and hear them talking about them to an audience. And then hang out in the bar afterwards, and pouring exactly, cheap get, whiskey under get the table. drunk with them. <laughs> well, it's sort of rather rubbish white wine at the, the famous Perla, the hotel there. And um, so... It's a wonderful opportunity, and I take mentees with me as well, and we find valuable work that we wouldn't necessarily know about. We make new contacts, and I love that kind of scouting. Is that thinking about you're finding things that excite you and writers that excite you and writing that excites you? Are you also thinking there is a place for this in the UK or the US market or the Australian market. I I can imagine publisher X, editor Y, I can imagine them liking this. Do, does that have yes, to figure in the, the decision? Yes, quite often I know. There, I went to the Sopot Literary Festival a couple of years ago because there was an author I had my eye on. I'd read some of her work and I wanted to hear her talk about it. And that confirmed to me that yes that this this is right and it's now that's a book called dr joseph's little beauty and it's by zita rudska and that's coming out with seven stories in april and that's a remarkable book it's set in an old people's home and most of these old people are essentially they're at the end of their lives but many of them rather unusually are survivors of concentration camps. In particular, the main character is a woman who, as a child, was experimented on by Dr. Joseph Menkler, and who's rather proud of this, which is a, a surprising <laughs> factor and rather shocking. And it is the most extraordinary piece of writing, uh, rather sparse, very effective, very difficult to translate because of the silences actually. Um, so, for instance, uh, that kind of scouting is very useful. I was then determined to, to pitch that and I thought about the publisher who I thought would be interested in it and who was Dan Simon at Seven Stories and indeed it worked. He took it. So, yes, I've got an eye to the English market. I don't... There are some things I like but that I don't think are necessarily going to have an audience in English. So, although, you know, I can get it very, very wrong. Um, but I do try to think about both ends of the equation. I always say when I'm translating, there are two people standing either side of me, and one is the author and the other is the reader. And without the reader, there's nothing. So I'm not pitching just anything. So I suppose quite a lot of my work does come from me trying to persuade people to publish things and I work closely quite often with Polish they only have very few agents but I'll work with agents and with 
the rights directors at some of the Polish publishing houses who are active in trying to promote their work. So we work together, um, which is great. It's it's a very good combination. Um, and when I started my career, I made a point of meeting all these people, going in and befriending them. Um, and then, so commissions are the rarity. Um, Chapsky, I mentioned earlier, Josef Chapsky, In Human Land, a really brilliant book published by New York Review Books, all about what happened to the Poles uh, during the war in Russia and his search for all the missing Polish officers who turned out to have been shot at, in Katyn Forest and other locations by the Soviets. But at the time, he went on a sort of fool's errand to Moscow to try and find out what had happened to them. And he describes all of this. He also... He was a painter and a man of very great culture. So he describes a great deal of encounters with literary figures, for instance, Anna Akhmatova during his time in Russia and um, uh, various Polish poets who were travelling with the army. Um, so it's a book with all sorts of different levels to it. Very, very powerful and important book. But I was commissioned to translate that. Right. I, I, I suppose that the process is also different when it's a writer you've worked with before. So um, there is a and new... And if they're alive or dead. And if they're alive or dead, yeah. So if, if there's, they're continuing to produce one way or another, um, there is a new Olga um, Tukarczuk coming in your translation, uh, The Infusion. I was reading the beginning of your translation of that, um, and we uh, won't talk in detail about it because no one can read it yet. But there was something which really struck me about, I think it was even like the first page. Um, you were talking earlier about uh, hearing the voice, the kind of listening, you know, hearing people read um, the audio book and, and listening to the voice. Um, but I was struck by something on the very first page, which is to do with seeing things. There is a moment which is incredibly vivid, which is describing... It's basically describing someone walking. It's looking at someone's sh shoes, I think, if I remember rightly. And y you can tell the person takes a step because a little bit of sock is revealed at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and it made me think about how much of translation is not just about listening. It's about picturing. Yes. It's not just, you know, here is a sequence of words or here is a meaning or indeed here is a voice. It's being able to see a thing really clearly and and then essentially describe it. Because that moment, it's literally, I think it's literally the first page. Um, so I feel like there are not too many spoilers and it's just a glimpse of a sock, which I think um, will not get us in, in any trouble for breaking embargoes. Yes, there is a glimpse of a sock in your translation of Olga's new book. But it feels like it's such a nice example of um, of a thing that is created in an, in an image of course, the way it, it reaches us is through is through words, um, but the thing that the thing that you kind of plug into mm -hmm. is a very very clear picture of a scuffed shoe mm -hmm. and a little bit of a kind of flash of a little bit of sock that we see as this person we don't know who anything about this person mm -hmm. I think takes a takes a step. 
Olga's done it brilliantly. It's really good. This whole book, this is very funny because I moved from Zita Rudska's very sparse dialogue book to this book, which is highly descriptive. So that was quite a big mental shift from something that's all voice to something that's extremely vivid and full of images. Mm. And uh, it was quite a, 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 my mind went, whoa. And, and different from other stuff that Olga's done as well. Olga's always yes. doing, it's, it's always something new, isn't it? Well, this book has a great deal of connection with The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. And I, I must say, I'd never got past base camp before, but I did go back to The Magic Mountain and go through, actually listen to the audio book, all 36 hours of it. And this book is set at a health resort for consumptives in 1913 so it has immediate parallels with the magic mountain but this is set in Gerbersdorf where there was a huge sanatorium which was actually the prototype for the one in Davos and so and it's a place that's now in Poland and isn't very far from where Olga lives called Sokołowska um so she has very deliberately referred to man's style so I felt I needed to absorb myself in that. And I'm glad I did, because it made me much more sensitive to what she's trying to do here. I wonder, we can come back to this book and to, and to Olga in a moment, but I wonder whether the, the, the next book you have coming out from Fitzgerald, which is imminent, is The Possessed, it's the Gomberich book. And because that is a, it's a, among other things, a sort of pastiche of, a, a particular kind of writing, a particular kind of sort of gothic book. When you talk about having to sort of absorb a bit of, of the Thomas Mann to get a sense of what it is she is playing with, I wonder whether you also have to do that with the Gomerich, whether you're thinking about, um, you know, I know that this is a pastiche of a certain kind of uh, story, a certain kind of voice, a certain kind of way of telling a story, and whether you have to be thinking about what is this thing behind it if you're to translate just you can't just translate the these words on the surface you have to know what it is that he wants us to be reminded of well it's funny with the gombrovich because i find it very british in tone and i think i grew up with this kind of tone it's a pastiche of a gothic horror novel but it's I mean, it's a very, very funny book, this. If you want a good laugh, I, I highly recommend it. Even reading the proofs for the third time, I was chortling to myself, which was very satisfying. Um, and uh, it, I think, he, what he'd done was he, this was, he wrote this book in 1939, and he'd already written Fair de Duca, which was one of his great, rather complicated works. Um, but he kept nagging friends of his, writers like Schultz, and saying, you know, what, a, what you ought to do is write a popular book, write a sort of pulp fiction and make lots of money and then you can write whatever you like. And so he decided to do it himself. And this book he originally wrote under a pseudonym. And it was published in serial form in a newspaper. Just like the old days. Yes, yeah. just like the old days. But it, the Second World War broke out. Gombrovich had gone to live in Argentina and didn't come back. And so it was never fully published. The publication stopped. And the public were left not knowing what happened next. After the war, Gombrowicz denied all knowledge of the book. He kind of abandoned this bastard child and denied paternity. 
And on his deathbed in 1969, he finally admitted that he'd written this book. And it was first published in Polish in 1974, I think it was. However, it wasn't complete. And it was translated into various languages. It was translated into English via French, but without the end. So it only came out in this edition, which I have here, in 1990 in Poland in full. So this is the first translation from the actual Polish, and it's the first complete text in English. So that's quite historic. Mm. And to, to me, it's that period of the 1930s. Um, we have quite a lot of authors who are a bit earlier than this, a kind of adventure stories, like people like John Buchan. And I love all that kind of thing. I used to read these things when I was growing up. And I think this is really a kind of sending up a style which we have a lot of in English, this kind of exciting adventure story. So um, on my way here, I made a little list for you of what's in this book. All right, so there I just is noticed, by the way, that, that you've scribbled on that the, the proof copy of that. Oh, I just noticed that uh, there, yeah. there are little, there are little oh, marks in, in actual red pen. Ah, oh, yes. Now, there's a good story here. Um, I, had, I bought this red pen to do my <laughs> corrections of the Impusium of Olga's book, because I printed out my translation and then I went through it. I like to scribble on things. And the most dreadful thing happened. Impusium um, is a horror, it's called a horror story too. And, and this also has kind of spiritualists and ghosts and things in it. And I finished working on my draft that I'd scribbled on of Olga's book. And I didn't have much time left, so I went back to the beginning to input all my changes onto the computer, and the changes had vanished. And I had a fit. I thought, I'm going mad, I'm going mad. And what had happened was, I, I wrote to the company that makes the pens and said, your pen is useless, the writing's disappeared. And, and they must get these letters all the time. Oh my God, it's just one of those, it's one of those people. We get one every week. I was in, going... They sent me a box full of pens, actually. Now I've got a huge supply. <laughs> of magic, <laughs> invisible ink they're pens. They're made by Mitsubishi or something. Anyway, so um, ma magical, invisible ink. What had happened was that I, I don't like to waste paper. And I had printed out my translation uh, 50 pages at a time or something. And then I'd fed those pages back through the printer. To the use the back up. of the paper. Yeah, and the heat of the printer had evaporated this ink in some way but I thought ah, it's the ghost of something <laughs> I'm haunted <laughs> it was horrible however um, I managed to recover all my corrections just by using my brain and um, put them all in so but it was a horrible experience and it was this pen which hasn't evaporated here but I mean, this is quite a warm room. Maybe by the time we finish our yes. conversation, there'll be nothing left. The whole thing well, will have disappeared. So I wanted to tell you about what's in this book. This is... There's something for everyone here, really. So there's tennis. There's a haunted castle. There's a mad prince. There's a mystery. There's a dotty professor. There's um, an emotionally confused young couple with an on-off relationship. Sounds like most of us. There's a mean millionaire... There's a vindictive marquise. There's a fat bitch. There's a thin bitch. There's a peasant farmer. There are snobs, 
tarts and frauds. Oh, and did I say the tennis? And um, that's just um, part of it. There are plenty more monstrosities and piquant ingredients in this book. It's also, as you say, very funny. And it doesn't, it's not, I said that it's this kind of pastiche of a kind of horror, like a kind of gothic thing. It doesn't require uh, knowing the thing that is being pastiche to enjoy the humor, I think. Um, I did not grow up on, you know, Walpole or whatever. Um, I wonder if we can say something about, about, I mean, translating funny things. Which is so much about, it is partly to do with voice, the thing you talked about earlier, but I feel like it's so much of it, it's not just cultural things and observational things. So much of it is about a sentence where you know that, like, if I took two syllables off this, it would be funny, but it's not funny quite yet. It's so much about that really precise crafting of sentences, isn't it? Well, in this book, and this is where it is rather like a British book, a great deal of the humour and the sort of critical side of it is that it's about he's having a go at society and there's a great deal in here about snobbery and about cl the class system but it's still tonal it, but it's, it's, it's in not, the voices it's not, yeah. exactly and that comes through in the way that people speak and that i found very important and very difficult too so some characters where i, I really found it pretty hard but so for instance right at the start of the, the book the first thing is a sort of stuck up stuffy person telling off a young man so immediately can't you see there's a sign here that says do not lean out do official orders mean nothing to you this remark there's a really great adjective in the next sentence so tell us the next okay. sentence this is Gombrovich. This is pure Gombrovich. This remark was addressed to the young man leaning out of the window by a faded elderly That's man the word. in person. I had a lot of trouble with that. Gombrovich has this brilliant way of coming. I, I had to talk about this book to a Polish audience a couple of weeks ago in, in Poland. I was saying how one of the things that's tricky translating him is that he'll have some epic adjective. He'll use adjectives, which are most people's enemy, um, in a, the most brilliant way. And I'll spend hours trying to think, what's the exact right word? He, he'll, he'll use unexpected adjectives. Because when you d describe somebody as faded, there's, there's a woman who's... who's um, Do you remember what the Polish word was? Uh, yes, I think it's but I'm not sure. Let's have a look. Um, I'm just also thinking about that. that yes, and blacknotch means to fade, so faded out. So it says, it happened on a train somewhere beyond Lublin. The young man drew his head inside and turned around. Do you know what the next stop is? He asked. So his casual tone contrasts with the stuck-up tone. And this book is full of things like that. It's um, a great deal of the humour comes across in the way the people speak. And um, I have Yeah, the difference between do you know what the next stop is and um, do official orders mean nothing to you. <laughs> it's worlds apart. And then there's, then there's a great deal of that in this book. And then there's all the characterization is done through these voices. Um, I have a friend called Stefan Ingvarsson, who is a tra the translator, uh, uh, among other translators, of Gombrovich into Swedish. And I had a very useful conversation with him. And he, I was saying to him, I have some trouble with the old retainer. There's a kind of batty old butler who appears in this book and definitely speaks in a non-standard Polish. And Stefan 
gave me the key. He said, oh, he's like an English butler. Yes, straight in, <laughs> for instance. I had the opportunity to put some wonderful words like pshaw and poppycock and all sorts of glorious things that my father used to say. I, I try to state a period. So well, that's what I was going to ask, actually, because yes. you're translating a writer. So this is something written in, in the... You said 1939. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of fussy about that. I kind of try to stick to periods, so I try not to put things that are anachronistic to the language of the time. That's not always... I mean, you, you also mostly translate contemporary writers, you mostly translate living writers, but I wonder whether that is one of the difficulties of, of translating an, an older writer like Gombrowicz, where you you don't want to pretend that he's writing in... 2023 but at the same time it's sometimes quite hard to write i was translating a 19th century late 19th century writer relatively recently and trying to figure out how to make him sound like a late 19th century writer rather than a parody of a 19th century writer um which is it's very easy to lapse into i mean i wonder whether the fact that this is supposed to be funny means that you can say shaw and poppycock and and even though it's clearly quite knowing that you're doing that yeah, i'm just following him i mean he's he's made it funny already yeah. so i'm pretty lucky but i know what you're saying i always say translations can age and they can be redone and there's no, no one translation of anything but books don't age so we'll still go on reading dickens without having to update him i mean personally i'm horrified by the idea of dumbing down shakespeare and rewriting him it's something personally um, I think go and look it up if you don't know what it means um, but I think I think you can it, it can be very difficult but you can translate to period without it sounding like a pastiche I've read um, not all of your translations but many of your translations uh, contemporary fiction, some older things, a bit of reportage, which we should talk about briefly at some point. Um, children's books, from young picture books to to some some older things, um, and uh, everything I've read, of course, has been brilliant. And you seem to be able to do everything, but I presume that you are not able to do everything. Uh, and I'm curious to know what what are the things that you find, even after many books, what are the things you find difficult? There are there, there are certain. I, I presume there are certain kinds of English you don't master, that you can, as you said, you know, these are words my father used to use, so you have access to them. What are the things that you that you, if a publisher came to you and offered something to you, what sort of things would you say? I'm sure this is great. I love it, but I wouldn't know how to do this. Well, I've been having some problems with. Um, I told. I mentioned Zita Rudska and her wonderful book, Doctor Josephs. Dr. Joseph's uh, Little Beauty, which is coming out with seven stories. And one of the beauties of her writing is its sparseness. She leaves things out. And she, that book is now several years old, but her most recent book, which is on the shortlist for every prize going, um, she keeps cutting back and cutting back and cutting back. And this book is the monologue of a woman whose husband has died recently. And it's partly based on the sort of language Zitter has heard at the local market, just ordinary people chatting. But it's a kind of literary take on that. And there's a lot of wordplay in there. And the difficulty, and of course, Polish being inflected, you can do an awful lot without a lot of words, which where in English you've 
inevitably going to use more words yes. to express one, one word will expand English to can, include can be other frustrating things. although English has its advantages obviously um, and this last book of hers which is called I think I called it in English um, only those with teeth can smile although it's not called exactly that but that's a sort of aphorism um, it is so pared down and the effects are so brilliantly achieved on the basis of so little that I find that extremely difficult and I'm still not sure how to do that. There's another writer I translate who is called Marius Stigiel and I'm going to be doing one of his books quite soon. But I did a book called Gotland. He writes reportage and he always reminds me, his writing always reminds me of the kind of great modern art where there's a canvas and where an artist has gone flip, flap, splat. And there's a work of genius with three strokes of a brush or something. His writing's like that. Again, it's economical, but it packs a punch. And I find that very challenging because you're always trying, having to restrain yourself from cluttering it. It needs that bounce it needs that lightness that that makes it so powerful um however i see that as a challenge rather than something i would shy away from the things i don't want to translate really are the kind of straightforward popular books i mean i've done some wonderful uh crime novels but with a bit more to them than than many so I think what I what I'm not so happy with is things that aren't terribly well written. That 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 sort of challenge that you get in the economy of the writers you mentioned um, is interesting, partly because, as I mentioned a moment ago, you've translated children's books, including picture books. You and I have talked about, uh, and you and I have have taught people to translate picture books together in the mm -hmm. past. And that feels like one of those places where if you're working on a book with 450 words in it, mm -hmm. spread over whatever it is, 32 pages, um, with a lot of constraints of um, vocabulary and of space and of all kinds of other things, um, those, those having to do everything in a really small amount of space, not being able to just expand expand and expand to fill that kind of the real estate on the page is also the pleasure though isn't it i mean the constraint is not just how annoying that i can't do whatever i want and i can't just you know add and add and add and add the the, the constraint is also part of what makes the 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 achievement of this thing satisfying yes no that's very true i did a graphic novel recently it's called mr lightbulb and um, fortunately, I could work with the author and he could tweak all his captions to fit. But at the same time, it's got to be and, well, film subtitling I do as well sometimes. And that's particularly difficult because you've got to have the words on the right shot. Um, and uh, But yes, it's a good discipline and it's interesting and it makes you think about the language differently. Um, uh, it's frustrating too. I mean, I'm never satisfied with anything I've done really. The worst is poetry and I don't go looking for trouble so I don't uh, translate poetry on the whole. Occasionally trouble comes looking for me 
and I end up translating it. And um, I've translated two poets who are totally unrelated but happen to have the same surname, Kristina Dombrovska and Tadeusz Dombrowski. And Christina, fortunate, I'm fortunate enough to share her with two other translators, which makes life easier. But um, Tadeusz Dombrowski, for some reason, um, you know, we're condemned to each other. Um, but something about it seems to work. And he's always nagging me to do more. And I'm rather faithless and don't translate his work enough, probably. But um, I do find translating poetry, oh, it, it is... I'd much rather teach the person who wants to read the poem Polish, really. I think it's probably a wiser approach. Unless it's... I like translating children's rhyming poems. Those are fun, because it's like doing a puzzle. One of the books you mentioned a moment ago was Marius Chego's Gotland. Um, and you used the word reportage earlier when you were talking about something you translated. Um for people who do not know what reportage is, uh, because it is not obvious to people who have not read recent Polish writing specifically, first of all, tell us briefly what that is. What is reportage? How did was what's the what's the kind of quick and easy definition of that? Well, it's um, non-fiction, which is not exactly news reporting, and is not exactly travel writing but very often tells you a great deal about a particular place from the ground up through the stories of ordinary people and their lives. So, for instance, I have recently translated a book for Open Letter in the United States, which is called Dogs Cry, Roosters Crow. It's by Wojciech Tochman, and it's about Cambodia. And it explores the aftermath of the whole Pol Pot regime and the kind of psychological state of Cambodia now through the work of an NGO that travels out into the countryside um, examining and then treating People who are mentally ill, who've been locked up in cages or chained up because nobody knows what else to do with them, um, and have sometimes they throw boiling water over them, which, needless to say, is not terribly effective. But there's a belief that people have devils living in them or something. So this organisation goes around giving, making sure these people get proper medical treatment and are given drugs and sometimes it works and there are also within this book lots of short pieces about the lives of particular people in Cambodia in different places so it gives you a portrait of that country and tells you a great deal about what's happened there um, in the form of these essentially personal stories that's that's in a nutshell but it but it 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 varies in range but it's it's a very literary form of non-fiction presumably from a from a translation point of view um the, the job is much like translating any non-fiction any literary non-fiction in the sense that you have the the as it were the literary aspects you have voice and all those sorts of things but you also have a sense of the kind of research that has to go into it from your point of view as well as in the author's point of view. The reportage is a is a, a, a distinctly 
a Polish literary form in a way, but your job is to acquire a sort of. I mean, I presume you you like 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 me when we're translating nonfiction. There's a moment where, like, for about fifteen minutes, you're a huge expert in something. Yeah. So for you, there was a point in which, like, for maybe twenty five minutes, you knew more about um what food was served to dictators, um for a book you did, and then and then it's something else. And and at the moment, it's yes, exactly. The, so the, um, the aftermath of the pop art and uh, I do the background reading quite often. And I will fact check because um, the authors obviously are doing their best, but it doesn't hurt to go back over things. Some of the publishers will then do fact checking as well. Um, <laughs> two nights ago, I went to see the Book of Mormon. Have you seen the Book of Mormon? It's very funny and you sit there laughing. But what was running through my head, for those who've seen the Book of Mormon, uh, it includes a sort of very ridiculous, extremely bad taste send-up of a Ugandan village. I translated a book by Wojciech Jagielski called The Night Wanderers, which is all about the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda and about child soldiers and about what happens in Ugandan villages or what has happened. So a large part of me was stunned <laughs> that this could be made into a joke because I know far too much about it I'm afraid um, and that's a superb book that's published by Seven Stories in the States as well The Night Wanderers um, it really does tell you the entire history of that country and what's happened to it in a, an accessible way, although it's a tough book, it's a, a shocking read in many ways, because what the author did in this case was go and talk to children in a home where they are essentially being um, rehabilitated after the psychological trauma of things like being made to kill their own parents and being made to join an army in the jungle. Um, and he... Actually, in this particular book, the author had a great deal of, of soul-searching to do because he wondered about adopting the child he was interviewing. And he felt, you know, he, he, he has a conscience about the people he uses for his work and talks to. And, and then leaves behind. That for, yes, and then the, the, that's it. He just goes out of their life. And um, some of these authors I know have done their best to help people and it's, it's, it costs them a lot psychologically too but um it's a remarkable are other challenges genre. in the in the translating then i think mm -hmm. that people talk about things that are difficult to translate meaning you know wordplay or humor or cultural things or whatever but i presume that when you're translating something which is which is full of stories that are that are about people who are very traumatized for example there are certain ways in which you have to kind of protect yourself if only because you know, you said that you know such and such might be a really difficult book for people to read, and it might be distressing to read. And of course, that's true. But if you're a reader, you might spend eight hours with the book. If you're a translator, you will spend three months maybe with the well, book. Think of the author. I mean, yeah, I, I, you do as the translator. I always say you have to let a book into your bloodstream, whatever it is. It has to become part of your circulation. And yes, I can. I've been very affected. If you translate from Polish or 
German or Russian, I mean, you're fairly likely to have some sort of Holocaust book somewhere along the way. And it is extremely upsetting and very, very hard. Um, I keep telling myself, well, this book's about survival because it couldn't have been written if the person hadn't survived. Um, and um, But the book actually that affected me the most was one we talked about earlier, which was Saturn by Jacek Denel. And this is a book based on theories about the life of the Spanish painter Fran Francisco Goya. Um, and there's not a lot that's known for sure, but it is known that he had one child who survived out of something like 12 and this was a son um, but not a lot is known about him it's thought that he was a painter too um, and it's also assumed on the basis of letters that are extant that Goya had some sort of a perhaps homosexual relationship whether physical or not is sort of hinted at in the letters but it's hard to tell with an old friend from his early years and this author Jacek Daniel has used these theories to make up a fiction about the Goya family, essentially describing a very, very toxic relationship between the father and the son. And I found this agonizing to translate because it, the emotions expressed in it are extremely raw and painful. And I remember Jacek finishing writing it and cheering up a whole lot, having got himself out of this world he'd created. And I said to him, was that, you know, was that sort of therapeutic to put that behind you? And he said, oh, yes, it's great to know not to be doing it anymore. And um, I said to him, oh, God, I'm going to have to go through all the pain. <laughs> and it really was. I found that book terribly upsetting, for instance. But yes, things about people having a terrible time in... Cambodia or wherever is it is it does affect you I want to go back before we before we wrap up Antonia to um one of the things we started talking about we were talking about the about going to a concert and hearing the Goldberg variations and seeing this sort of the, the way in which what you're experiencing is a single person's interpretation of this thing that was created in this case several hundred years ago and I'd like to talk briefly about um, what happened to your translation of Drive Your Plough with the Bones of the Dead, mm -hmm. which um, is not a book published by Fetzcarraldo. It's a wonderful translation. It's a translation that also has has sold incredibly well. It's, it's, it's very sort of, you know, it's been read very widely. It's been shortlisted for big prizes and so forth. But it also, um, just last year, was made into a stage production. Um, which I saw in, in Bristol, I think, in December, and it, I thought it was wonderful. It was Catherine Hunter in the, in the lead role. And it feels like that's a really interesting sort of next step in that kind of process of evolving interpretations. Mm. What we were seeing was not Olga's book exactly. It was not your translation exactly. It was what someone had, had done with it. It felt like there was something inherently familiar to those of us who've read your translation, and I presume Olga's uh, original book but it kind of moved on to the the next thing mm. what was it like seeing that i i, I, was, I think you were not really involved funny. in the the, no, the making exactly, of it but you God, went no. and you went really and sat in the room with everyone and watched it happen when they first when they first decided they wanted to do it they they can't they contacted me about you know rights and so on and uh the 
director who's this very maverick character. He's a he's a sort of crazy genius. And um so he wanted to talk to me, so we arranged a time when we could talk. And I thought, you know, what do I have to say to this fella? And I thought, well <laughs> finally he came through on a Zoom call and um I said, Well, I've only got two things I can think of that that I would say to you. One of which is you absolutely go and look at the landscape and meet Olga and have her show you the place because the, the place is very important in the book. And he said, oh, yes, yes, we've already arranged that. And and he went to see Olga and, of course, they l- loved each other on site and hit it off brilliantly and are both rather um, maverick and <laughs> nonconformist. So I knew that they'd be common spirits. Um, and then I said the other thing is that... Um, What's very important about this book is the first-person narrator. So when you're reading the book, you are inside her and you are seeing the world through her. She is not... She's another unusual, let us say, character, a free spirit. And so... The minute... and But you absolutely, as as a reader and as an audience member, you absolutely need to be complicit with her from totally. page one that was the most important thing i found in the translation was keeping the reader on her side that was the critical thing for me um and a lot of work went into that but the thing is that um with the i said to him agnieszka holland had already made a film of it and of course agnieszka holland makes her own film it's not just the, uh, the book it's inevitably her thing but the minute you turn a camera on that character you've got something else you're not inside her anymore this is what I said to him. I said, you know, it's a good film, but it's something else. So I think you need to consider that and whether there's a way to stay inside her. And he said, oh, yes, yes, I've thought about that. And he already had some amazing ideas, such as a bit where there's a, a boar that's been shot by hunters and he has, and she speaks up in this boar's defence. He has the boar speaking, so that's very clever. And he then made this n- narrator character talk directly to the audience, which is absolutely brilliant, and it worked really, really, really well. So I was very pleased that he took those things on board. So Olga and I went to see this play, and um, we were both absolutely amazed because we had expected, and there have been lots of stage adaptations of her work in Poland. I mean, it happens all the time. They, they made one of her books into an opera, and you know, they make it into everything. So we were both expecting it to be very interpretative and not, you know, in some ways unrecognisable or completely changed. We just sat there listening to our words being shouted at us. It was incredible how much, with, with swearing put in, which is my natural mode anyway so um it's it was remarkable how much of the text they did use and they had put this show together they don't use a script they work from the text and um they just work with the book in hand and develop a show and then of course because simon mcburney changes his mind things will change on different nights so probably what you and i saw was quite different i've seen it with both lead actresses um and they were different um but i no, i was amazed how close it was to the book and it was wonderful it was a very nice experience to see that you could do something like that i mean i was expecting to think it would be a bit odd and kind of something else but but no it was a really close reading of it 
and a thing that also has i mean you said if it sort of felt like you you had your your and olga's words just kind of being shouted back to you but it also f felt like a thing that had ex total integrity as a bit of storytelling and I think there's something about how we how we think about what we're doing as translators, which is which is about producing something that is still alive, right? It's it's not just it's quite easy to do the other thing. It's quite easy to you know work out what something means and say what that thing means, but actually what you're doing is trying to create something that has. You use the word voice at the very beginning of our conversation that has that sort of you know what feels like it has a kind of pulse. Well, your book describes all of this brilliantly. Catching Fire. It's called Catching Fire, isn't it? It is, yes. Thank you um, very much. It's, anyone who's interested in translation should read Danny's book because it is just such a brilliant explanation of what it is we actually do. And um, I sometimes make a joke that uh, you know, people are always asking you for metaphors for translation. And one of mine is that you've got to take, perform vivisection on a body and entirely take it to p apart. Then you've got to reassemble the whole thing again and it's got to get up and walk off the operating table still alive and breathing, but with completely different parts. <laughs> so it's like, or you said something about how you've got to take something apart and reassemble it using completely different words <laughs> in a completely different language. And it's that, it's that thing of, of it still being alive at the end. <laughs> um, and you and you then you then get to give people the experience of this thing. I mean, I think what's so interesting about, even if it's you know the 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 adaptation of of Drive Your Plow, um, Simon Burney's adaptation, um, is that that original impulse, which is I've read this writer in this set of words, and I would like people who don't have access to it to have access to it. The idea that you can have a translation which will be published and which will sell and which will be read by people and which will be talked about and which will be experienced in the in a stage incarnation mm. um, for people who, to go right back to the beginning, were not themselves in Poland in 1980, whatever, <laughs> um, that is sort of the point of it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. But it's also about universal human experiences. I mean, all, all, what makes great literature is that it's 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 not just set in one place in one time, but it it speaks to all of us. And I I do try and that's part of the thing about what's going to work on a different market is what is there about a book that's universal and that speaks to anybody and I, and I mean that's the other important thing showing us that we are all the same <laughs> literature can do that but it's done in a way that is very that is incredibly particular incredibly precise most of the books that you've talked about in the last couple of hours you've told us where they're set you've said this one is set very importantly, in this particular village or in this particular <laughs> landscape, and this person has this particular background, this particular way of talking. Yes. Um, and so it's not that these are vague, international, non-specific settings. We're talking to, you know, the, the woman who's at the center of Drive Your Plow, for example, okay. um, is on paper not very much like me, <laughs> um, though she works as a translator as well, so this is important. Um, but... Uh, it's not when you talk about universality you're not talking about a lack of 
particularity. There is a thing that transcends those yeah. incredibly precise things that make yeah, someone feel Yeah, that's what I mean. The human. things that speak to anybody, and, and those are definitely there. And, and yes, and all the, the, the place and so on is all rather fascinating and and of interest because it's different. But there are there are larger things that can speak to anyone, I think, that come through through stories. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A good way to end. Everyone go off and read some books. Yes, go they're away and read some you. books. Yeah, and they're fun. Thank you very Yours much, Danny. And thank you, you for its Fitzcarraldo editions for the opportunity for us to have a nice chat. That was Antonio Lloyd-Jones on the Fitzcarraldo podcast. Thank you.